Chris Hahn here on the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. We don't just talk about progressive politics. We tell you how to win because that's what being an aggressive progressive is. Check us out every Tuesday. New episodes on Pandora, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss a week. The Aggressive Progressive Podcast with Chris Hahn. You are now listening to Bigfoot and Beyond, featuring the OG bad boys of Bigfoot, the Dr. Heckle and Mr. Jive of Squatchology, the Chip and Dale of Bigfoot, and I'm not talking about the cartoon. Please welcome your hosts, the Bigfoot celebrity couple, Biff Clobo, better known as Cliff Berrickman and James Bobo Pay. We are honored to have the lovely and talented and historically important Henry Franzoni joining us tonight for a conversation. Yeah, that's great. I was excited he said he was coming aboard. I'm doing pretty well now that we've uh, made it through our little technical interlude. Uh, how about you? <laughs> how are you guys? Good. Things, things are great. Things are great. Yeah. Well, Henry, anyway, thank you very much for coming on and joining us this evening. I appreciate it. And I thought perhaps a good way to start is because we've entered into this difficult time in Bigfooting. And that difficult time, I think, was the resurgence um, of the subject. It's due to the resurgence of the subject. Probably finding Bigfoot is at fault here. So there's a ton of new Bigfooters who who are kind of stumbling into the subject for the first time. And these poor souls out there, they get most of their uh, information from YouTube and chat rooms and Facebook pages. And, and so they don't know who you are, the, by, by and large. They don't understand that uh, your significance in the subject. Um, they may not even know your name. Um, for those people who are listening who might have watched a thing or two on DVDs or something, Henry Franzoni's the guy playing the drums in the snow. You know, that's how most people might know you from uh, Sasquatch Odyssey. But um, you were well, in the game a long least, time I, ago. Yes, 1993 to 1998 was my five-year obsessive period where I just lived and breathed looking for Bigfoot and was completely obsessed and, you know, barely got anything else done in my life. And so since 98, though, I've had a... I've stepped out of the public eye. 98's when I decided to... uh, go quiet and leave the public forum for Bigfoot and basically go off with my own approach in my own way and leave the world of Bigfooters, people looking for Bigfoot, Bigfoot researchers behind. So, yeah, I can understand why people don't know who I am because I I tried to cover my tracks pretty much. I, I, I did have a moment where I decided I did not want to be the main go-to narrator for things Bigfoot. And for a brief moment in time, I was kind of the go-to narrator for the media. But things were much smaller back then, and there weren't anywhere near the amount of companies involved, and there weren't anywhere near as many people involved. It was a much smaller thing entirely. 
in terms of just yeah popularity and people and things like that and yeah finding bigfoot probably really boosted the amount of bigfooters once upon a time john green accused me of creating all the new bigfooters by putting a discussion group on the internet about bigfoot right yeah which is what the ibbc is what you're referring to i believe right yes you created far more bigfooters than anybody both of you guys i think Yeah, I'm pointing fingers. I'm pointing my fingers right at you too. Yeah, I I started uh, my Bigfoot trek back in around '93 and '94, Um, and I I will say the IBBC was seminal on that. So again, um, I I can blame everything in my life upon you, um, which is uh, a nice a a nice a nice scapegoat to have. So thank you. Now the IBBC yeah, for those uh, uninitiated is well. If correct me if I'm wrong, it was the uh, Internet or International Virtual Bigfoot In- Conference. Internet, but Internet Internet was a big new thing. Yes, 1993 Internet was a big thing. Yes. Oh yeah, so brand Internet new. Internet conference. Yeah, it was brand new, and the web was brand new. It, I'm I'm glad. Well, see, some good came out of it. That's that's excellent. No, I'm I'm glad that you know it. it uh, well, sorry about ruining your life, but on the other hand, my only yeah, regret is I only have one life to ruin for Bigfoot. <laughs> really, really. <laughs> well, back in the beginning, you were uh, you weren't you weren't interested in Bigfoot. You were one of those guys that came into it. It seems like there's two. Well, there's yeah, there are two types. Those that are interested and in get into it. And those that have an experience and get into it, you're, you're part of the latter group, correct? I had an experience that, you know, a story I've told many times. And in fact, um, I'll, I'll tell it again at the drop of a pin. Yes. But the uh, I had an experience that I couldn't really explain. And that first experience really colored everything that followed for me and took me off in the direction I went off because I really didn't go, you know, well, maybe this is the route a lot of people go. I studied the science and I studied Indian legends. And from the very beginning, the whole Bigfoot thing for me had something to do with Indians because the experience I had was based on not looking for Bigfoot so much, but looking for the evil god of the woods that some Chinook Indians said lived at Skookum Lake in Clackamas County. And so my girlfriend, now wife, and I went up there one night to see if the evil god of the woods still lived there. And that was my first encounter. And I did not set forth to look for Bigfoot that day. I set forth to look for the evil god of the woods. But when I smelled something that smelled like wet dog fur, and it was really pungent, really strong, that's when I got a picture in my mind of a big hairy animal. Even though I didn't see anything, I smelled the smell that uh, 
was distinctly an animal smell and it, and it smelled like wet hair. And so, you know, your mind pictures a big hairy monster. And at the same time that I was smelling that smell, all the crickets stopped making any noise. And my wife looked at me from the passenger seat of the van we were in and said, I'm gonna take a nap, I'm tired. And she just immediately went to sleep. And there was something weird about it because she went to sleep so fast. And so suddenly we had just been drinking coffee and, and then my hair stood up on the, at the, on the, as if a balloon was being rubbed on my hair and the hair was being pulled up by the static electricity. My hair went out like I was being hit with static electricity. And my van went dead and it turned out the starter motor was blown. So even though I never saw anything, I got hit with an energy field. It blew the starter motor and I had to hike out and come back the next day with a new starter motor to leave. My wife mysteriously went to sleep and then as suddenly as it happened, it stopped. The smell went away. The crickets started singing again. The only lasting damage was no starter motor. But I was completely weirded out by the experience because that wasn't what I expected. You know, the evil god of the woods to hit me with some kind of static energy, static electricity. I felt later that it had to be some form of static electricity because my starter motor died. So that was the first five minutes I ever looked for Bigfoot. It was super weird. I didn't understand it. I didn't have an explanation for it. Whenever I tried to tell people that experience at the time, I was ridiculed and pretty much everybody explained it to themselves by saying, I had some kind of perceptual failure. I was drunk, I was wrong, I was mistaken, I was crazy, I was looking for fame, I was, you know, luckily this is like 26 years ago, so actually not that's true. But the thing is, is that very first experience set me off in a slightly different direction where I wasn't really sure what I was looking for didn't strike me like a simple animal out in the woods. <laughs> I wasn't uh, I wasn't convinced that I was looking for something like a gorilla mm -hmm. because of that thing that happened to me. And for me, you know, it also created the problem of that's an experience, and wisdom comes from organized life and have experiences in life. Science is different. Science is organized facts. And those facts have to be things that you can actually reproduce and test and judge and measure. And so science has a place when you're studying facts, but when you're studying experiences like this, where there is, as science as we know it today, couldn't explain that to me. There was no scientist I talked to at the time that could possibly explain that to me in any terms other than there was something wrong with me. And I didn't believe that. I didn't think there was anything wrong with me. I thought 
that was just a really weird thing to have happen. And so I was kind of um, set forth on an outcast path from that point on. Well, you know, science is uh, like any other tool. It's good for specific problems. Um, and the yeah. human experience is one of those tools that science seems rather ill-equipped to deal with. Um, the physical world, it does great. Science does a wonderful job at creating bubbles and toys and, you know, getting to the bottom of some truths, but not the human truth. And um, and that's where I, I try to, even though I'm not a woo kind of person, as you know, I'm more science-based in my pursuit of this phenomenon, um, I do give lots of room for those people who do experience strange, subjective things. And to me, it's just another way to celebrate weird in the in the universe. And I love weird. Um, but uh, yours seems like a very reasonable platform from which you set out uh, on your trip. Because if you haven't caught on yet for the listeners, yeah, Henry's on the woo side of things. If you want to believe that there's actually sides to this sort of thing. And I don't think sides exist in a circle, you know, in a sphere. But um and in fact, Henry is well looked up to um, by the likes of people like Tom Powell, for example. Tom will go consult Henry before writing books. Um, and Tom's well known to be in the woo side of things and the paranormal side of things. So this seems like a very reasonable place to start your trip when weird stuff um, came looking for you. First five minutes. The thing is, is that that subject that you have just described is part of what sets me apart from both sides of the discussion. Because um, I think something else. I think that the paranormal people and the science people both just see part of the picture and both have an incomplete uh, description of the phenomenon. Back then, I didn't really... Um, have the credentials I have now, which is that I became a scientist, actually a fishery scientist, a quantitative fishery scientist, and doing statistical analysis in particular. For 25 years, I had a whole career. I'm very sympathetic with science, and I understand it very much. I now have published many peer-reviewed papers but I have also, yes, gone and discovered that for me, the real problem is simply this. Science as we know it today has no logical explanation for my experiences. So I have set forth to devise new science and new scientific principles, or at least um, conjecture what they should be in order to provide a logical explanation for my experiences. Because I believe in science and its logical experiences, it just can't catch up with my experience. And at this time, it's way behind. And I think that one day, science will advance far enough to explain the woo-woo stuff. But at the present time, it's not that advanced, and they actually there's all kinds of a tension between those that are on one side or the other. But I don't think either side should really have tension with the other because I think both of them only have a partial picture. Yeah, nobody really knows what's going on. 
you know, and we all have our models that seem to work with our own subjective experiences, you know. Um, but really, at the end of the day, no one knows what the hell they're, they're talking about. Right. Absolutely. No, it's true that um, Peter Byrne, of all people, many, many years ago told me there's no such thing as a Bigfoot expert. And that's basically what he was talking about. There's nobody really knows very much. We all really don't know very much. We have we have little bits of experiences and knowledge and things that we we try to see patterns in and we try to put together a model, like you said. Like, yes, I've made a model of you know speculative science, let us call it, and that seems to work for me and and I see, I have a trouble because when um, I'm talking to a person who's on the woo-woo side of things, often what happens is that conversation degenerates into offering that person some validation for their latest woo-woo theory. And so if you're identified as a person who's sympathetic with the woo-woo perspective, you can be approached by so many really out there folks and they they read your book or they read some interview with you and they think you're going to agree with them. And I don't know, you guys probably know this better than me, but I had so many conversations that after I had them, I was like, boy, I really, that was a hard conversation to have. I really didn't enjoy it. And yet I felt kind of alienated from the science people, too, because I was like, no science people. You know, this is science here. But science, as we know it today, isn't advanced enough to actually understand things that have to do with awareness and consciousness, as well as biological animal reality. And, you know, it... Um, it leads me down a, a sort of a third way, which is a merger of the two, because I have written two things. One was pure science early on, 98. The NASI, uh, North American Science Institute, report on, I forgot the title of it, it's been so long, Towards the Resolution of the Bigfoot Phenomenon. Yes, that was the title yeah. of the book. That was Jeff a paper Glickman. headed by Jeff Glickman. Exactly, exactly. Where yeah. they, uh, Peter, Byrne, and those guys, I think, gave as much data as they could to y'all. And then you did all sorts of number crunching and this and that's and determined the size and the weight and this and that about the Patterson-Gimlin film. Yeah, Jeff, Jeff was the lead guy. And um, I was, uh, well, I don't know what I was. I was just kibitzer. I got to play with all the stuff and hang out with Jeff. And so I... I contributed a lot to that paper. But even then, 1998, I was looking at the Indian legends as the greatest source of information. And those old pre-1935 Indian stories that I could find had more information in them than anything else that I could find. So useful information. So I had sort of really folk, you know, actually what I did was I got carried away with um, the first 
day in my first experience. And I looked, you know, to Skookum Lake to find the evil god of the woods. Then I looked at everywhere Skookum that I could find. Then I got into mapping everywhere Skookum in the North America. And then I spread to all the other names of Bigfoot and Seattle and Mountain Dev, everything you could possibly think of, and looked at it like a computer guy and just put search terms into databases looking for geographic locations and then looking for patterns in the geographic locations. But I got carried away with all the different aspects of Skookum Lake from my first day of the whole idea that the Indians knew where they lived and were familiar with the land and that the Indians were the best intelligence agents that had been gathering intelligence about another intelligent species, which is what I concluded in my personal findings they were. I concluded they weren't an ape, they were another intelligent species, they were like the people, that's what I thought. That's what my experience told me, is closer to people than closer to, you know, animals. But, you know, people are animals, so, you know, it wasn't really saying much. But, yeah, the, <laughs> right. um, the, the thing is, is uh, I went that direction early on, and that was, and once I went far enough down that road, I kind of came to the conclusion that the Indians did have claim on this more so than the white culture, in a way. They had uh, been paying attention to it for a much longer time. They had much more respect for these creatures, and they had much more information. And, But, you know, it, as I'm sure you guys know, there was a huge, continue, huge spectrum. You, I talked to a hundred different Indians, let's say, and they they would have a hundred different opinions about Bigfoot. Well, so, at the end of the day, they're just people with their own subjective experience, but the differences, exactly. they have a cultural foundation in which to put those subjective experiences, I think. I'm not, again, I'm not native, I'm not yeah, even close, I think that's you know. But still, you know, I, no, I, that I seems like a, really a good, good way to yeah to put it into words. They they have their own subjective experiences, but they have a cultural foundation in which to put that subjective experience. Where like white people, it, it's there. Our cultural foundation is sadly enough like in search of you know and stuff like that. Exactly. I did an episode of In Search of. I'm a guy running across the ground with my wife under the Fleer helicopter that's chasing the guy we had dressed up in the um, visibility suit running around the woods. No, no, that wasn't in search of, that was another that one, one from the 90s. Mysterious Encounters. That, that's, uh, is, uh, is that, I'm not sure that's Mysterious Encounters either. That's to me sounds like that video that we almost did an yeah. episode on for Finding Bigfoot. Did, did you ever hear about that, Henry? No. No, well, check this out, right? The, the, the good people at FLIR, Right, the the actual corporation, they they like the show. But I mean, there's a poster of us in their in our entry room and the Wilsonville office and whatever else. They love Finding Bigfoot. 
And um, they pulled me in for a few gigs over the years. And we're just, you know, we're, we have a good relationship. Well, they were cleaning out some room at some point, And they came across this uh, VHS tape. And um, it was marked with a label that said Bigfoot. And that's it. Right. So they go, what is this? And they put it in there. And it's thermal footage of what appears to be a Sasquatch walking underneath what uh, some sort of like chase helicopter or something like that. And it looks really good. And so the producers get a hold of it. They go, oh, my God, what is this? And the, the FLIR people say, I don't know what this is. It was in a storage room. We have no idea. So um, Chad, one of our, uh, you know, our, our uh, lead producer, basically, on Finding Bigfoot, he, he gives me a call and says, Cliff, what do you know about this? And he's, he sends me the footage. I'm going, I don't know anything about that. That looks amazing. And I find the backstory and I go, oh, my God, what is this? And like we're basically set to do an episode on it. Like we're we're literally like a couple weeks away from doing an episode on this. And um, it just looks so convincing to me, you know, and, and I happened I, we happened to be filming a main episode and um, I showed it to Lauren Coleman. I said, hey, Lauren, look at this footage. You know, have you ever seen this go. before? Yeah. And, and then he goes, yeah that looks familiar, you know? And then like a, a, like a day later, maybe a couple hours later, I don't remember Lauren calls me and says, Hey man, that's from this episode of this program. And it's, it wasn't mysterious encounters. It wasn't, it wasn't, uh, no. um, in, in search of, it was something else. Um, was, uh, Larry Lund was there. Peter Byrne was there the whole, and I could, don't do it. And so I had to call the production company and said, dude, we found the source of this video. What, what was that? Unsolved mysteries. Well, uns I think that, I think you're right. Maybe that was it. Robert Stack. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we couldn't, I, but l luckily Lauren Coleman came through and saved the day. Yeah. I made that you guys and we made it. <laughs> we didn't make it to fake a Bigfoot. We made it to practice our response because yeah. we had set up one 800 Bigfoot number and we had this dream that we would call the FLIR helicopter in, which we had on call. We paid him to be on call. And we would then jump in and race after the latest sighting, which would be reported two minutes before they called 1-800-BIGFOOT, by the way. And right. um, then we would immediately, and so we had actually coordinated with all the local law enforcement guys, Portland police and the SWAT team and guys in Vancouver. And we had actually worked out what we were going to do with the body and what we were going to do with, you know, it was dream on fellows, but we actually, <laughs> we spent a lot of money, man. Where, where'd you guys get all the money? Yeah, Henry? Was it your money or is it you guys? Got it from like sponsors. Sponsor. One sponsor. This 1 800 Bigfoot deal was, of course, the Bigfoot Research Project, one of Peter Burns' um, uh, several year operations looking for Sasquatches full time out, you know, out in the Dowels, I think, wasn't it? No, Hood River, actually, Parkdale. Park, out of okay. Parkdale. There yeah. you go. Um, it, it, um, yeah, it was one of Peter Burns' many fun. You know, he had a lot of years that he was funded to look for Bigfoot. He was the great fundraiser. Peter Byrne looked apart. I mean, I love the man. I won't get into his personal character, but he 
had this ascot and this, you know, beautiful hat and uh, the accent, the Irish the accent, and the the whole whole thing was just you know was just such a he's actually British too, right? And so the whole yeah. thing was just so impactful. And the thing is, is that Peter was hooked up with um, the Explorers Club out of New York. And through the Explorers Club, there was Robert Rhines, the guy who looked for the Loch Ness Monster forever. That was also one of those old Buona Dick white gentlemen that, you know, the old uh, whiskey swilling adventurers of yesteryear. So the Explorers yeah, the Club, it's really... Yeah, exactly. You know, the, all the pith helmet guys. It um, the money came out through there, but what it actually was was there was a guy who didn't want anyone to know who he was, and I think even today because he went into politics in Indiana, and he was a garden tool manufacturer. And he did not want anyone to know who he was. So only about three of us knew who he was. And he passed, he laundered the money through Robert Rhines, the Loch Ness Monster guy, and his organization, the Academy of Applied Science. And so the Academy of Applied Science officially funded the Bigfoot Research Project. But it was actually this one dude in Indiana. And that guy, the funder got sick of Peter Byrne at a certain point and fired him and Jeff Glickman took over. So there were two projects, the Bigfoot Research Project, then the follow-on project, the North American Science Institute. And the one collected all the data and the second analyzed all the data. And so it took five years to get that far. And Glickman did some really excellent work, I thought, you know, yeah. Glickman. And I, and I helped, you know, I was there with him doing a lot of it, helping. I've, I've, you know, I've remained friends with him since because he's a great guy. And he went on to look for Amelia Earhart. He gave up Bigfoot and moved on to other interesting problems to solve. Yeah, and, he was just in the news this past year about a discovery of some wing or something from Amelia Earhart's plane, if I remember right. Yeah, like maybe yeah. last maybe last year or something. Yeah. yeah, he's been doing it lately. You know, he's uh he's a fascinating dude. I I I really like I love Jeff, man. He's a great guy. You know. We had we had we had great we had a great time. And but after this experience, everybody else I mean, with the exception of Peter and myself, everyone else forever abandoned the world of Bigfoot, including Glickman. He's done no work in Bigfoot since. And um, all of us, I was the only one that was still keen for the game. <laughs> At the end, it ended in tears. And I was the only one left that was like, okay, let's look for Bigfoot. <laughs> 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 well, yeah, a glutton for punishment. But you work with the, uh, a lot of people don't know your story, but you work with a lot of the tribes in Oregon, right? So you're you're constantly surrounded by that community. Yes, well, I work for a 
a tribe in Washington now. I've changed. I, I've moved downriver, and I work for the Cowlitz tribe now. But yeah, I've spent 26 years working for the tribes for the Yakima, the Warm Springs, the Nez Perce, the Umatilla, with a little bit of the Shoshone and a little bit of the um, Colville Reservation. You know, uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm. I've been. I I spent a lot of time in Indian country the last 25 years. In part, I mean, to steer that back to Bigfoot, because what what happened to me, what Bigfoot said to me, when Bigfoot spoke to me in my heart, was that Bigfoot's role in nature was to, um take care of all the other living creatures. I mean, that might be, that might sound a little utopian and naive, but as I tried to understand what their role in nature was, it seemed that they were um, the god of the woods, in essence. They, they were actually conservationists of a form. And so I thought, what a great thing to be I'll be a conservationist. And so I aspired to be a true conservationist and work for the tribes as a tribal conservationist on their fisheries for 25 years and um, had a whole career and spent a whole huge amount of time out in the mountains, up in the headwaters of all the salmon-bearing streams in the Oregon, Washington, and Idaho region. So I've lived out there, you know, like really a long to a lot. Been out, been outdoors a lot, and um, studying the wildlife and studying all the uh, measuring quantitatively all of the environment and wildlife, and then doing fiendish calculations and trying to measure the mortality and survivability of all the different animal populations but particularly fish. But, you know, something that I wound up doing, and strangely enough, it was my ability to map Bigfoot sighting reports really early before other people had ever done it using GIS, which now like everybody can do all the time. Grandma can do it in two minutes. But there was a time where I was like, an expert because I was like the only person that knew how to do it. And I mapped all, I mapped where I thought Bigfoot was. And then we looked at all kinds of, we looked for patterns and looked for things like uh, what seasonal patterns and food patterns. And, you know, we looked for, are there any patterns? And so that became a useful skill in real biology when it came to actually trying to save endangered species. And so I was, my Bigfoot research actually helped me become a scientist. <laughs> that's kind of a backwards, isn't it, Lil? <laughs> yeah, you would think, you would think that's a little backwards, yeah, yeah. But that, um, but yeah, now I work for the Cowlitz and I, I am, I am a pure IT guy again. 
I used to be this sort of combo IT guy, fish biologist, but fisheries, really fisheries and IT. But now I'm back to pure IT. And everything I'm doing is is really focused on uh, helping uh, people and helping the tribe with their people and providing services for all the people. So I've moved my well, focus from fish to people. Well, let's let's look at your yeah. um, computer literate background a little bit because uh, let's go back to the IVBC. Um, the Internet Virtual Bigfoot Conference. Uh, that was the first thing I had ever seen online about Bigfoot because I was roaming around the Internet looking for stuff at that point. Um, and again, it was nothing fancy. It wasn't even a website, really. It was a listserv. It was a, um, somebody would post a question, and then underneath, if somebody wanted to answer, it was indented a little bit, and then they could answer. And, you know, it's in... It was a public domain, um, open source mail server, list server, that was called Major Domo. Now, and, uh, I was I was never active. I didn't participate because at, at, at uh, most, perhaps you can't tell, but I'm actually a, a, a quiet introvert and I don't interact. I'm more of a lurker and those sort of things. Uh, but when you go back and look, the list of names that were active then and there, many of them are still tangentially active or interested in the subject even still. I mean, I think Lauren Coleman was on there. You were on there. Um, uh, uh, Adrian Erickson was on there. Um, Moneymaker. Uh, my, Moneymaker was on there. Um, Rick Knoll. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the, uh, many of the future luminaries, essentially, you know, no matter how brief their luminescence was, um, were present on that list. Um uh, can, can you talk a little bit about we were, what that we were list... big... Oh, Eric Beckjord? Eric Beckjord? I think he actually ended the whole thing, if I remember right. Yeah. And then it eventually kind of morphed and changed and started the BFRO in a weird sort of way, didn't it? Yes. I, I guess what I could tell you is to tell you the story of that for uh, the people are, who are interested in history. So there was an Indian named Silas Salmonberry, who was a Kootenai Indian, but he had been taken as a child from his tribe and raised in Chicago in a foster family. He and I, the only thing that was Bigfoot at the time was Usenet had a Bigfoot news group on Usenet, the first thing that was run on Unix machines back in the beginning of the internet before the web or before really much except email, Usenet was where we shared text, right? Newspaper articles, supposedly. Yeah. So there yeah. were two groups, Bigfoot and Alt.Bigfoot was the name of the news group. And Alt.Barney was the name of another group that worshiped Barney the Purple Dinosaur. Uh -huh. And these two groups fought a battle where we just flamed each other endlessly. And all we did was insult each other. And it wasn't about Bigfoot at all. We had just insulted each other and um, got really creative and artistic in our put downs and in our flame wars where we flamed and flamed each other. and. We really relished flaming, unlike today when people are tired of it now on the internet after, you know, 30 years of this crap. But 
in the very beginning, we just thought it was hysterical to just, you know, be as bad as possible and insult everyone as much as possible. So these two groups insulted each other. And then me and Silas come along and we become friends with the um, administrators of this group. And we go, look, we want to have a serious Bigfoot news group, but they controlled everything alt.bigfoot on Usenet. So we convinced them to create a sub category, alt.bigfoot.research. And that was the first serious place to talk about a Bigfoot on the internet. And it was this Usenet news group. And Silas set it up with me. And then Silas and I, I said, hey, Silas, check this out. I got this Pearl script major domo thing. We can set up a listserv, you know, with like uh, discussion groups. And so poof, we, we did that. And then Silas and I parted ways. He lost interest in pursuing the Bigfoot stuff um, with, uh, in public. And he actually moved back to the Kootenai Reservation, and I've never seen him again. He disappeared. But he should be credited as he and I were the first true believers on the Internet going, wow, we, we have to do this. So we had this Internet virtual Bigfoot conference and this listserv and all those guys. And then I set up a website for Peter Byrne and one for Renee DeHinden. And I was working on Patty Patterson's, Robert Patterson's, Roger Patterson's wife's website briefly. During this time, that's when I got discouraged. And I said, as I learned more at that point about my own personal experiences with Bigfoot, I just thought it was a waste of time to publicize everything and getting arguments with people in public about meaning of this or the interpretation of that. And I could just turned into a Grinch and I just said, nah, I'm getting sick of all this shit. So I decided that I wanted to bag it all. And um, Eric Beckard was a factor because he was stalking me at the time. And, uh, <laughs> but um, right then, I created a subdirectory for Matt Moneymaker to create the BFRO. And then Matt, being really super intelligent, immediately said, wow, you know, I could all do this myself. And then I would be in control and I I wouldn't have anybody you know, giving me a subdirectory on their website. And poof, he went running off. And I had been engaged in an argument with the funder of the Bigfoot Research Project about whether or not to build a database online for citing reports. And I really wanted to do it and had made a just a draft little database where I threw a bunch of citing reports into one single table, you know, with no real organization to it. And the big fight was they didn't want me to facilitate hoaxers. And so I got squelched from the funder of the project who didn't want Glickman, too, was on that side of things. And they didn't want to give the hoaxers any extra information about 
things so that they could make their hoaxes more real. And so because of that, I just sort of said, all right, I'm not going to do this database thing. And at that very time, Matt, who, you know, God bless his soul, he thought, wow, and he told me at the time, I'm going to avoid the mistakes that led to your failure, and I'm going to make an improved model of this thing. And I said, more power to you. <laughs> I said, go for it, buddy. Yeah, you know, um, because I just didn't want to play that role in society and had a taste of it and, you know, had, I don't know if I would have ever done that, you know, but at that time, that's what I thought about this whole thing. And I, of course, my views have changed radically since then. And like those other, like those other people, I, I kept, I was interested forever in it. And I learned a lot from working for the Indians for 25 years. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 